Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Proudly not mentioned by anybody of any significance in the American evangelical world at the moment. Now, the reasons for that I think are fairly obvious. We are the only reformed investigative journalists who are prepared to blow the whistle on the sinister connection between Steve Nichols and the Botox industry. Uh, the only podcast where we were prepared to run with what was regarded as reformed Protestantism's worst kept secret, and that was the, the dark background of Derek Thomas uh, with the British glam rock band Slade. <laughs> and indeed, the only uh, investigative journalist brave enough to venture into a West Virginian biker bar... <laughs> in order to interview housewife theologian Amy Bird. Mm -hmm. So welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, uh, Carl Truman. I teach church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And I'm here with my good friend and newly minted Presbyterian pastor, uh, Todd Pruitt. Welcome, Todd. Good to see you, Carl. It feels good to be newly minted. Um, as a as a Presbyterian, I just received my John Calvin tattoo, and um, uh, it looks quite good. Yeah, and the body piercing is looking quite impressive I, as well, Todd. Absolutely, uh, you will fit into the piece the the new PCA. I, that's what uh, I thought. Like a a hand into a glove. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, th I, I thought I, I see my role is to help remake. Uh, the PCA. Yeah, so. you, you, and uh, John Payne. We, we think of you as the ordinary means of grace, guys. That's right. Word, sacraments, and suntan. <laughs> the ordinary means of, of church growth. So. Yes. yes, yes. Well, uh, Carl, um, we always, of course, talk about serious things on this podcast. We usually do so in a fun, sometimes irreverent way. Um, however, periodically we do address uh, some issues that are particularly sensitive, and such is the case uh, with our topic on this broadcast. This is a story about one woman. This is a country where, on average, two women are killed every week by a Investigators say Cummings later admitted to kicking the child. was abused or neglected every 36 seconds. Just think about that. Tragic cases. died locked in a cage. People just on the phone. Then you hear the gunshot. His favorite, she said, involved repeated hard slaps. To the back yeah. of the yeah. 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 There is someone that will help you. All you gotta do is ask. We want to um, very carefully, uh, biblically, pastorally, um, wade into the difficult waters of uh, spousal abuse because we know this is an issue um, in the church today. We know this is an issue that Christians have to face. We know this is an issue that pastors have to deal with and churches need to know um, how to deal with uh, uh, very carefully. And so, Carl, uh, wh why else? Why do we want to, uh, to address this? What, uh, what has brought it to the surface for us? Well, it is a, a reality in, in all churches. Uh, I think also it is biblically very important when you think that uh, Paul regards the love of a husband for a wife, the relationship of a husband to a wife as reflective of that great relationship between Christ and the church. We have to realize that if we turn a blind eye to spousal abuse in the church, then 
there is a sense in which we're blaspheming the name of Christ. Not only is it a terrible tragedy for, usually it's the woman uh, on the receiving end of the abuse, not only is it a terrible tragedy for the woman involved, but it has serious implications for the church as the body of Christ, and ultimately serious implications for the reputation of the church before the world. Now, the world is always going to despise the church, but being despised for the gospel and being despised for spousal abuse are two entirely different things. Right. And we need to face up to the fact that this is a reality within our churches, and we need to deal with it firmly, decisively, mm-hmm. and biblically. Carl, you were telling me earlier that uh, you received a question uh, recently from another pastor. The question is, does spousal abuse constitute desertion? And how did you answer him? Well, just to backtrack a little bit, this is a big question, of course, because mm-hmm. biblical grounds for divorce are typically you know, adultery right. and desertion. Mm-hmm. And one of the big questions, therefore, that comes up a lot in churches is going to be, is vicious treatment of one spouse by another, does that constitute desertion? Or is desertion to be considered in strictly geographical kind of quantities? Right. Uh, the way I answered this question was... Yes. Mm-hmm. Spousal abuse constitutes desertion, particularly extreme spousal abuse. How many of us are perfect and ideal spouses? None of us. But there's a difference between failing to be precisely Christ-like and being committed to a long-term physical and mental abuse of one spouse. Somebody who is unrepentantly committed to long-term physical and or mental abuse of their spouse, I would say has deserted them because desertion is a quantity that is reflected by dereliction of duty mm-hmm. rather than abandonment of space, if I could put it that way. Uh, that the, the husband who is failing to fulfill a Christ-like role in his marriage has abandoned his wife. He's abandoned his post, if you right. like. He may still be living in the marital home, right. but he's not there as a husband anymore. So I would have no, if a lady came to me in my church and said, my husband is is beating me black and blue, uh, can I divorce him? I would say yes. And 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 I, w- I want to get at that because, uh, so first of all, I wonder if we can put it this way. If, if you would put it this way, I, I think I would put it this way, um, that as we think about adultery, as we think about desertion, which the Bible clearly identifies as grounds for uh, divorce. We would say that those are grounds for divorce, at least I would say that those are grounds for divorce precisely because they are a profound violation of the covenant of marriage. I like the way you put it. This is the case, you know, a spouse has abandoned their their post. Um, so, so what bothers me is that we do have, there are prominent evangelicals and prominent groups who say that spousal abuse does not constitute grounds for divorce, and they do so on um, hermeneutical grounds saying that, well, the Bible doesn't say that. But I think that that's a flawed hermeneutic to say that because a verse does not say, if your husband beats you, you may in the marriage. I think that that's a flawed hermeneutic because it's missing the larger principle of why divorce is granted in those cases, m- meaning a, a, a profound uh, breaking violation of the, of the covenant um, of marriage. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. When you understand marriage in Christological terms, 
I mean, this could never happen. But if Christ was no longer savior of the church, then it's a tautology. He would Mm. no longer be the bridegroom. I think if the husband is abusing his wife and is no longer trying to fulfill that Christ-reflecting role for his wife, he's no longer the bridegroom. She's released from the bond. And if she remarries, I don't think she's committing adultery. we want to be careful and say we are not trying to expand beyond biblical bounds uh, the grounds for divorce. However, it is important because, as I said, there are some prominent, well-respected, and for good reason, well-respected evangelicals who have said pretty prominently that spousal abuse is not grounds for divorce. And I'm troubled by that, not out of sentimental reasons, although we ought to feel something in regard to this, but primarily because I, I think it's a bad hermeneutic. Yeah. And it leads to abusive results as well. Right. Women trapped in violent and dangerous marriages right. cannot get out, yeah, cannot it, get the help exactly. that they need. And, and it's a failure to pastor them well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if, if we send a battered woman back into that abusive marriage, um, then I, I think pastorally it's dereliction of duty as well. So here's a question for you, Todd, on that front, a broader practical question. woman comes to you and says, my husband broke my arm. Well, my husband's been beating me and I've been hospitalized two or three times by his behavior towards me. Uh, Would you encourage her to call the police? Absolutely. In fact, I think in that case or or a similar case, the first thing you do is is get her in a safe place physically. And then the second thing you do is um, uh, contact the authorities for her, help her. To, uh, to do what is necessary legally uh, to press charges against her abuser. Uh, just like if, if a strange man walked up to her in a street and began whacking on her, um, uh, it's no different than if it's her husband. Yeah, I mean, I think that point has to be made that just because somebody's a husband does not give them the right to treat somebody in a criminal way right. and get away. Because with that's it. what we're talking about. We're talking about criminal behavior here, and the church is to um, honor uh, those civil laws, particularly when a civil law is clearly backed up by biblical law, um, a, a husband uh, cannot um, uh, abuse his his wife. And, and the church, every church needs to be uh, very ready to know how they're going to respond to that situation. If you're a pastor and you don't think this is going on in your church, it may not be. But if you have 100 people or more, if you have 50 people or more in your church, I, I, I don't want to be morbid here, but there, there's a good chance. Certainly if you're in a in a church of over 100 or 200 um, uh, your 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 chances rise uh, significantly. I, I've had to deal with this very situation uh, more than once. And here's a maybe maybe a tougher again practical question, but a, a tough question. What if it's a he said she said? He's beating me. No, I'm not. Clearly, the session, the elders, the pastor. There's going to have to be some investigation there. But in the interim, how do you respond? Do you do you, do you always side with the putative victim in that case. 
Yeah, I, I, I would not want to say we automatically side um, with a putative victim. I, I, w- I would be uncomfortable with that. Um, and, and this goes to the point in part of how well do we know our congregants? How well do we know our parishioners? Clearly, we can't know everybody exhaustively, and clearly we can be fooled, and, and we can have some man in our church or some woman that, that has all the apparent marks of godliness but is, is living in a way that's uh, secretly that's very um, uh, incongruent with that. But um, I, I think it requires a lot of wisdom, and it requires elders and pastors that are uh, uh, very active in the lives of those who are in their church. Again, that's not going to give us an exhaustive knowledge, but we've got to know them well enough so that we can at least make an educated guess in those situations. I think your suggestion that uh, the session has to be ready to sit down with each partner and do a, an extensive interview to, to get a better idea. These are the kinds of things you have to do, unpleasant as it is, in a situation of a he said, she said. I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying you automatically side. Uh, with the accuser, um, but you certainly can't ignore it. Yeah. And one of the other things that I, I think is important to mention, I'm guessing that, well, I know that you and I hold this position, I'm guessing that most, if not all, of the people listening to our podcast are probably complementarian yes. in their theological convictions. Yes. They see a definite distinction mm-hmm. between the genders. They see a role distinction there. They see, for example, the pastor as an exclusively male preserve. Mm-hmm. One thing I think complementarians have got to realize is that the feminists are, are right when they say that complementarianism can be used for abusive purposes. Right. They're wrong, I think, when they see that it always has to be used for abusive purposes. But certainly in my experience, uh, I've chatted to guys who clearly think that male headship means bottom line is they can treat their wives like chattel. And, and, and I'm not accountable to my wife. Yeah. And that, I think, is should be a warning shot to, to pastors. There's this great reaction at the moment against feminism, and uh, goodness knows feminism needs to be reacted against sure. it at many points. But let's not so react against feminism that we forget the fact that what we teach still has to be taught in a nuanced way, right. a loving way, a way that isn't going out there to use the trendy terminology to empower abusive men to abuse right. their wives, because that does happen. Absolutely. Uh, we look at the child abuse scandal in the, the Roman Catholic Church, and we can tend to, to take a somewhat pharisaical attitude to that, I think. But we've got to realize that domestic abuse of all kinds is rife in Protestant circles as well. Yes, indeed. And um, I, I think we have to be very careful as a church to think through specific policies to have in writing so that all of our officers know this is the way you respond when a husband or a wife or a child comes forward with um, allegations of abuse, um, no matter how embarrassing it might be, it has to be uh, addressed. Yeah, child sex abuse is an obvious hot-button topic at the moment, both in the wider world and within the broader church and even now within the the evangelical world, uh, particularly in the United States. A child protection policy should be absolutely basic in all churches. There should be background checks 
on anybody involved right. in uh, dealing with children mm-hmm. within a church. And I think it should be a policy that if a child makes an allegation, however bizarre and wild yes. it might seem, it has to be re- whatever the reporting rules right. and laws are in your state, it, you as pastor, as elders, need to report it to the police. You so, have to allow the police to deal with the legality. You deal with the pastoral side of it, but right. the police have to be informed for the protection of the child. Maybe the child is a fantasist. Maybe they're not. You are not to make that call. You are not to take that risk. You have to hand it to the authorities. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. And when they arrive, they say they can't interfere with domestic affairs between a man and his wife. And as they walk out the door, the tears well up in her eyes. Last night I heard the screaming, then a silence that chilled my soul. Prayed that I was dreaming when I saw the ambulance in the road. And the policeman said, I'm here to keep the peace. Will the crowd disperse? I think we all could use some sleep. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Churches ought to have a reputation. In fact, I would say we must have a reputation um, for being extremely protective of our children. Um, And that has not always been the case. In fact, right now, uh, that sounds almost like a joke, considering what has gone on in the church in Roman Catholicism as well as Protestantism. Um, But we ought to have uh, an impeccable reputation for how we care for our children. I served as pastor in a church in the Midwest for nine years and uh, was there uh, for our first three phases of construction, and there were cameras placed in every corridor, every room of that church except for restrooms. Um, there was literally nowhere you could go that I'm aware of in that building that you weren't being recorded and it being saved to hard drive. Um, we had very extensive rules. Uh, no adult was to take a child to the restroom unless there was another adult also. And Uh, we had to help our children's workers understand that such is society now. We have to take these these sorts of things uh, seriously. And I can tell you, as a pastor, it gave me great comfort to know that every hallway and every room was wired with a camera that went directly to a computer. Yeah, it's for your own pastoral protection as much as anything. Absolutely. And it's vitally important that the church, we're not joking aside, we're not 16th century Anabaptists. Right. We, 
When you join the church, you don't opt out of society. You remain a citizen of this world. Right. You remain obliged to the the laws of this world. Uh, when I remember years ago, maybe 20 years ago, at a church I was at in England, having a hypothetical discussion about what would happen if if a child was abused in the church. And one of the, the people there said, well, we'd have to deal with it within the church. To which my response was, well, yes, but we'd also have to hand them over to the authorities. Right. Because that's a criminal act. Right. And just because you've joined a church does not exempt you from criminal penalties. Right. Uh, yes, there'll be a church sanction if, uh, if, if somebody abuses a child there's a church sanction there's going to be church discipline there has to be civil discipline as well yes. uh, I remember somebody uh, another person in you who was who was caught uh, in a, an internet sting uh, was sent to prison uh, propositioning a young girl for sex on the internet mm. found out it was an FBI agent I think when they they turned up for the liaison uh, and Christian friends saying, you know, well, why did he have to go to prison? He'd repented. Well, the answer is, it's great that he repented. He can certainly be restored to Christian fellowship, but he's also got to take his civil penalties. Right. He's, he's, he's offended against the laws of society, and the church needs to realize we, have to, we are open and accountable on that level right. to the laws of the civic realm, and we shouldn't allow any misguided piety or pietism to effectively protect abusers right. because that's what it does right. it's effectively protecting abusers yeah and, and the church is not only obligated to uh, to obey those laws but particularly when those laws like the laws to protect children from predators we are we we can rejoice in those laws we give thanks because in in that way uh, the civil magistrate if you like um, has been conformed to scripture um, to uh, to punish evildoers, and that's a good thing that we ought to uh, ought to celebrate. I would encourage churches if they haven't done this yet, consult with an attorney so that they know exactly what their obligations are, what they must do when they learn of possible abuse. Uh, consult with an insurance agent that they can get great information from an insurance agent who has uh, expertise in this area, so that they are doing everything that the state requires. Um, in regard to their obligation uh, to victims, and then to put it down in writing, in policy, and and also on a practical level, if you can wire your place with some cameras, do so, and have as many interior windows as possible. On a connected subject, I guess we're not we're not we'll move out of the realms of, of legality and spousal abuse here. On a positive side, I think this again goes to the importance of elders and ministers modelling in their own lives uh, good household management, yeah. representing to the church not a, not perfection. Nobody's going to be seamlessly mm-hmm. perfect, but embodying in the way they treat their wives, embodying in the way they treat their children, embodying the way they. They comport themselves on a Sunday and throughout the week, uh, an ideal, mm-hmm. uh, something to which people should aspire. I was very disillusioned recently when talking to somebody and I asked them about a particularly well-known uh, evangelical figure and the person didn't answer my question. They said, you know, it's just very disillusioning. The closer I get to some people, the more disturbed I am by the state of their marriages. Mm. And I thought, isn't that an eloquent comment? 
pastors have a peculiar responsibility to be good household managers. That's very clear from Paul's pastoral epistles, where it's the household image that grips his imagination Mm -hmm. as he's talking about church government. I'll let you close out in a second, Mm -hmm. Todd, but I just want to mention again before we close a couple of books that the John Armstrong's book, Stain That Stays. I don't know if it's still in print, but if it is... I believe it is. Every pastor should buy that Mm -hmm. and read it. It is terrifyingly convicting. Yes, also awesomely practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, another book I would recommend is Christopher Ash's book on marriage. Not sure that it's actually published in the United States, but you get it from the book depository, I'm sure. It's published by IVP in the UK. It is the best biblical scholarly study of marriage of which I'm aware from an evangelical perspective. So I would suggest that all pastors get hold of uh, Christopher Ash's book on marriage as well. Sounds like a great recommendation, and I agree with you on the Armstrong book, and uh, everything I've read by Christopher Ash is worth reading, so I'll have to track down the other one. Well, we're so glad that you chose to uh, join us for the Mortification of Spin. Hope that it's been helpful for you. Our goal here is to have a casual conversation about things that count. Uh, Please visit the website of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and until we talk next time, have a wonderful day.